Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Thank you so much, uh, Paul, Jesse, and the praise team for your leadership today. I want to ask you, church family, if you would find your way to the book of Esther, the book of Esther. Uh, Esther is 10 chapters in length. It's a, it's a short story in the, in the scriptures. It's a historical account uh, of a story that really happened. And so to find Esther, if you're not real familiar with the Bible, just just Divide it in half, and you'll find your way, you'll find that you're in the Psalms, most likely. And then just start going backwards toward Genesis until you get to Esther, all right? So as you're finding your way to Esther, I want to introduce this book to you a little bit. Today's sermon is titled, the, the King Who Played God, or, you know, what it's like when you, when you have a deadline, and you're like, that's what my title's going to be, and then 30 minutes later, you're like, ah, that's not a good title. So it's either the king who played God or a tale of two kings, because there's, there's the king in chapter one that we see, and then there's the king of kings that's behind the text. There's the king of kings who is uh, not represented, or who is in many ways the opposite of the king that we're going to read about in chapter one today. So if you have your copy of God's word, go ahead and find your way to Esther. The, the events in this book occur during the reign of of King Ahasuerus from 486 to 465 BC. He's better known by his Greek name Xerxes. In fact, some of you, your translation might use the word Xerxes rather than Ahasuerus, but it's the the Hebrew version of his name that we find uh, in the original language, and so we'll go with the name Ahasuerus rather than Xerxes. But if in your Bible it says Xerxes, same guy, all right? By this time in world history, Israel and Judah don't have a land to call their own. They, they have fallen to enemy powers. So they have no, no land, no territory, no human king on a human throne. Now about 60 years before this story, King Cyrus of the Medo-Persian Empire had allowed the captives to go back to Jerusalem. And by 516 BC, there's a temple, a rebuilt temple standing in Jerusalem. But the people of God still remain under foreign Rule. So the promise of a king, a savior king, who's going to be over God's people, they're still waiting for that. And in fact, many of them, it seems, have almost given up on the promise of God. Although the Jews had the opportunity to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, most Jews decided to stay right where they were. That's where their family had been for a few generations by then, so they just hung out wherever they happened to be. Which means that Jews were scattered throughout the Persian Empire. So there's a temple standing in Jerusalem, but no king, it seems, ruling over the people of God. And the the seeming absence of God in the story of God's people. Have you ever felt like God's absent in your life? You ever ever felt like, where where is God in this situation? Where is God in in my country and what's happening in our culture and everything's unraveling? Where is God in this moment? That's what what the people of God felt like here. They're they're captives. Where, Where are the promises of God in my life? 
When's God going to show up in my life? Is He working? Is He doing anything? The answer of Esther is a resounding yes. But it's interesting how the story answers this question. Because God's name doesn't even show up in the story. And His name doesn't show up in the story so that that the, the story can identify with us and where we are in those seasons where it feels like God is absent, Esther goes ahead and says, look, there are going to be seasons that it seems like God's absent. But by the time you get to the end of the story and you're able to look back through the story, you're going to go, God was all over the place. In the moment, I couldn't see him, but by chapter 10, oh, wow, look at God everywhere. When there seems to be no movement in my life or in the lives of those living under foreign rule toward the promise of God's Son over His people. When it seems like Jesus isn't going to return, I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and the world is devolving and devolving and devolving. When it seems like God's promises are not going to prevail, Esther reminds us that God hasn't taken a day off. Psalm 121.4 says, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God is not asleep at the wheel. The Bible is, is filled with amazing accounts of God's direct action on behalf of His people. The parting of the Red Sea is the main event in the Old Testament. Or the glory cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. The shepherd boy who kills Goliath with just one shot. These are the stories that we remember. But we need to remember that God is working in the forgettable things of life. We need to remember that God's still working when those situations happen that we'd rather not have to remember. God is still there. You see, the clearly miraculous is seldom our experience. More often, we live in the mundane or even the miserable. Is God there? He is. You see, the God who parted the Red Sea, the God who raised Jesus from the dead, often works in less obvious ways than miracles. Though God is not mentioned in this story, the story is no less significant than the exodus, the escape of the Israelites out of Egypt. Why? Because this is a story, as we'll see in subsequent sermons, about how the people of God were spared from obliteration from the face of the planet. They came within a hair's breadth of being exterminated off the face of the earth. And if that were to happen, what would happen of the promises of God to give a son through the Israelite people? Everything is at stake in this book. Esther is a, is a book for us. It's a book about living between the times. Between the time that God promises and the time that God delivers. It's about God's going to send His Son. Well, where is His Son? We live in a similar situation, right? His son has come. His son has fulfilled the promises of God. And yet, as we just sang, he's coming again. And so we got to wait for him. We got to wait for him through war and through a wicked culture. And Esther reminds us not to give up on God. Even when we can't see him, he is working behind what we see. As Dever writes, Esther is one of the longest sustained meditations on the sovereignty of God in the entire Bible. In seasons where it seems the promises of God have failed and pagan leaders seem to have all power, Esther assures us that God has not been dethroned. So would you read with me 
Esther chapter 1, we'll, we'll read the first eight verses to begin, and then we'll pick up the remainder here in just a few moments. Hear now the word of God. Now in the days, oh, I need to interrupt myself for just a moment. I apologize. This is a revolutionary day at North Roanoke Baptist Church. For five years, I've been preaching from the New American Standard Version. I like the New American Standard Version a lot. But they updated it, and so I use the New American Standard 95, and now they've got a 2020 version that I don't like as much. And there's a translation that has really good resources, and many people have been asking me, why don't you switch? Why don't you switch? Why don't you switch? And I've been resisting. Today, we are using the English Standard Version. <clears throat> Somebody's going <laughs> to... Don't dance, Chris. It's okay. <laughs> English Standard Version, all right? So, so if, you're, if you're in your NASB 95, which is awesome, we're in the English Standard Version today. So if you want to run out of here and go to Amazon and buy an ESV Bible, that will help you in subsequent sermons. Verse 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion." For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. God, help us. Help us to understand what you want us to know about the true king, the king of kings today. And God, identify within our lives areas that are not bowed before the majesty of the one who is worthy of our lives. And, and God, shape us more into the image of Christ as a result of having been here today. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verses 1 through 8, we see that God's people are living under a king who thinks he's God. God's people are living under a king who thinks he is God. Verses 1 through 8 set the stage for the story of how God's people, the Jewish people, are living as exiles under pagan rule and how they come within moments of extermination. And instead of being exterminated, they are dramatically delivered through the selflessness of a Jewish orphan girl named Esther who somehow becomes queen. Chapter 1 begins to set in motion how it is that Esther will eventually become queen and God will work in her life to reverse the fortunes of God's people. To understand how amazing the reversal is going to be that we're going to read about, we first have to understand the incredible pride of the world that they're up against. 
We've got to learn to not adore worldly pride and power and wealth. You've got to remember, Esther is written from the perspective of someone who is a person of God. And so there's a little bit of a poking fun at worldly power that happens here, as we'll, we'll see as we work through the text. King Ahasuerus ruled a massive empire. In fact, it was the largest empire in world history up to that time. The seat of his power was Susa, an old Elamite city that was destroyed by the Assyrians back in 640 BC, but Ahasuerus's father, Darius I, rebuilt the city and made it the center of power in the empire. Susa is located not too far north of the northernmost point of the Persian Gulf. And for those of you who remember the, the Gulf Wars and remember watching on TV, I watched CNN like 24 hours a day in the first Gulf War, and I got very familiar with where the Persian Gulf is. You just go a little bit north and east into Iran, and you're in what was Susa. It was centrally located between the extremes of the empire, India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces. Within that city of Susa, there was a, a citadel, which is a fortified palace complex that's defended where the king and his administration live. The empire encompassed most of the known world of that day. The people who had known and had the promises of God lived within its territory. From the perspective of God's people, it seems that not God, but King Ahasuerus is ruling the whole world. For the people of God living under rulers and systems that presume to take the place of God even to this very day, there's a temptation in our lives to accept what the world says of itself. To throw up our hands and say, well, the world's just going crazy. The culture's going crazy. So I'm just going to despair or I'm just going to give in. I'm either going, going to despair that God has abandoned His throne, He's abandoned His promises, or I'm just going to say, you know what? There is no God. I'll just worship the world and worldly power and wealth and fame. I'll just buy into that. But Esther shows us that God is still king, even when earthly powers assume that they are God themselves. When they, when they misuse, as we'll see, alcohol and sex. When they live for themselves in their own glory, rather than the good of others and the glory of God. God is still on His throne. And King Ahasuerus certainly has a God complex. He has a six-month-long feast in the third year of his reign, 180 days, not to honor the military or celebrate someone or thank others for their service, but to show, do you see it in verse 4? To show the riches of his royal glory and splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. A party all about him for 180 days. Can you imagine being a servant in Susa? A 180-day party? I would be worn out. When is this thing going to end, man? It's like 180 days, 145, got a few more days to go. King Ahasuerus spared no expense in throwing a party to tell everyone else how great he was. I mean, it wasn't enough that he was king. On the throne, everybody needs to know how amazing I am. The extremes to which this king would go are meant to help us understand how laughable it is when we do the same things in our life. When we parade in our glory, when we have to always have the last word or have the better story. I identify that with that in my own life. I always somebody tells a great story, I'm like, well let me tell you about my story. I'm like, why do I do that? 
Just let somebody else have the limelight. Those who know the King of Kings have no need to adore or pursue worldly status or crave worldly power. We've already been rescued by the King of Glory. As we're going to see in the book of Esther, greatness in God's kingdom is not found in self-promotion, but in self-denial. God's people will be rescued by a king who denies herself, not a queen, by a queen who denies herself, not a queen who exalts herself. In verse 5, we learn that the, the days of the feast, the 180-day feast, are completed. The, the world for King Ahasuerus is complete. Everything's perfect. He's had six months of everyone celebrating his greatness Secured with the hard-earned taxes of the citizens of his massive empire. Everything's complete. Everything's perfect. So what does he do when everything's good? Of course he does. He throws another party. Right after the 180th day, let's have another party. The feast this time happens in a garden. And in this part of the world... Gardens are very uncommon and very special because it's an arid, dry climate. The party lasts seven days, and it includes all the people present in Susa, great and small, which means that Jewish people would have been at the party. God's already working in the background. He's already moving things and pieces for his plan to come about. But for now, King Ahasuerus is happy to presume he's king of kings. Indeed, he's trying to be God. The language used to describe the king's garden should remind us of another garden. Do you remember another garden that had a bunch of gold in it? It's called the Garden of Eden. It should remind us of the ornate decorations in the tabernacle and the temple and the linens and all the costly materials. The ground on which the guests were walking here in the gardens were made of things that that other people would have put in their curio cabinet at home. Has anybody got a curio cabinet? Does anybody even know what that word is? I bought one for my wife five years ago. She's got snow babies coming out of her ears. And I get so tired of like putting those things away and bringing them out every Christmas. You know, we got the little styrofoam box that we put them in, and then we put them in the green box and we store them. And I'm like, what are we doing this for? So I bought her a curio cabinet. And one day we're going to pass away and our kids are going to come through and be like, what in the world are these for? I have no idea. But they weren't walking around on snow babies. They were walking around on like crazy expensive raw materials. Stuff that anybody else would have put away for safekeeping. Even the wine cups were gold. And rather than have you get a Soho cup and a Sharpie to know whose cup is whose, every single cup was made of gold and had a different design. So all the people, great and small in Susa, everybody gets their own gold cup. You can drink as much as you want according to the king's bounty. Praise God. I mean, that sounds like an amazing party, but where did he get the resources to do all this? From his people. He was robbing his kingdom blind. Praise God, we serve a king who doesn't take from his people to put on a show about how great he is. He doesn't need anything from us. And yet he came down to give us himself, which is far more than the gold they were walking around on and sitting on. God says in Psalm 50 verse 12, If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. God has no need to take from his people. 
And yet he lavishly gives us himself. So when we give to God, when we collect an offering, it's not because God needs something from us. It is because we are invited to worship him by being generous. Those who know the king of kings are not captivated by worldly abundance. They are pleased to give because what we have in this world is nothing compared to what we will receive when the king of glory breaks in again. The king's power seems solidified until verse 8. When it comes to drinking, the, the law was that there was no law. And if the king makes a law about drinking, he's willing to make a law and go to extremes about just about anything. The people of God are at real risk in this kingdom. And yet, the author is poking a little bit of fun at the king in verse 8. The king who wants to be above the law, who wants to be the law ends up making a law to ensure that no one was under a law. Yes, it's, it's dangerous to be living under pagan rule, especially in a kingdom that wants to legislate every detail of your life, but God has not been dethroned. Seven days of partying in a garden should remind us as the people of God of another garden and another time and another place. Do you remember how the story of the world began? Did God not spend six wonderful days preparing a place for the people of God to worship and encounter Him and know Him? And on the seventh day, Adam and Eve could have entered into God's eternal rest. But what did they want to do instead of having a great party with the King of Kings? They wanted to be God Himself. They wanted to write a law that said there is no law. God, I know you planted this one tree that we're not supposed to partake of, but we'd rather write our own law that says we're our own God, and the law is that there is no law. And what did Adam and Eve do? They suffered the consequences of their rebellion. Here we have a king acting just like Adam, a king who isn't satisfied to be king in the garden. He wants to be king of kings. God is fully aware of the presumptiveness of this king, and he's not amused and he's not threatened. Church, we don't need to fear worldly authority because we know the king of kings and our Lord reigns, Psalm 97 verse 1. But how will the people of God survive in this kingdom, in this empire where the king seems to have so much wealth and power and arrogance and glory? We've got to keep living for and waiting upon the true king. We've got to obey where we can. How do we live in these United States of America as culture and country are de denigrating all around us? We obey when we can. We pray for our leaders often. And we've got to remember, church, that our ultimate allegiance is not and has never been as the people of God to Capitol Hill. It just isn't. Nations rise and nations fall. Politicians rise and politicians fall. But there is a king who stands above it all. And our allegiance is not the one who serves on Capitol Hill. It is the king of glory who was slaughtered on Calvary's hill so that we could be full citizens of his kingdom that never, ever ends. We don't owe our lives lived in service of worldly power or fame or wealth or prestige, but to the king who came down, not to take from us, but to give to us. 
to have his blood shed in the garden of Gethsemane so that he could reverse the law of lawlessness in our hearts and instead write the law of God on our hearts so that we would delight to worship him and serve him and be his grateful citizens. King Ahasuerus makes a law that there is no law. Maybe, just maybe, he is vulnerable. Maybe he isn't God after all. Let's keep reading. Verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with a royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meris, Marsina, and Mimukan, the seven princes of Persian media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. All right, here's, here's the law. According to the law, verse 15, what is to be done? To Queen Vashti, because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mimukan said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of, the, of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mimukan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. What we see in verses 9 through 22 is that the king who wants to be God can't have whatever he wants. The king who wants to be God doesn't get to have everything that he wants. The king of the empire isn't even king in his own home. In verse 9, Queen Vashti is introduced and she gives a banquet. They like to party in Susa. Three banquets in nine verses. At the end of the king's party, he is once again drunk with wine and self-importance. Not a great state of mind for decision-making, as we will soon see. 
he's surrounded by his seven eunuchs. Now, everybody knows what a eunuch is, right? It's a, it's a man who's had his twin organs that allow him to be reproductive removed. Everybody tracking? Said that as, as well as I could. All right? That's what a eunuch is. A, a eunuch is literally impotent. And as Wells writes, only a man who fears his ultimate impotence needs to be surrounded by impotent men to remind him of his potency. He's not surrounded by qualified leaders. He's not surrounded by other virile, powerful men. He's, he's got to have a cadre with him that makes him feel great, makes him feel superior. So on the seventh and final day of the party, the king sends his eunuchs to bring Queen Vashti before him. She's having her own party, and it's described very modestly because the author wants us to, to see Vashti as, a, as being in contrast to the, the king that, that she's just throwing a party. Right? We don't see any description of gold and all this other crazy stuff. She's just having fun with other ladies there in the kingdom. And on the, on the seventh day, the king wants to be with his queen not to give her his love and devotion, but rather to expose her and to exploit her. The text says that he sends eunuchs to bring her before him with her royal crown in order, do you see that? To show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Not, not to have her intimately, not, not to be just with her, but to put her on parade for others. This king is not our king. Our king does not parade us in front of other people to prop himself up. He needs no propping up. No, he, our king comes down. King Jesus leaves the glory that he already knows, surrounded by powerful angels. And he empties himself of all but love, wraps himself in our humanity, is beaten and crucified for our sins, and is raised to everlasting life, not to shame us or embarrass us, but to clothe us in his righteousness. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, if you'll surrender your life to that king and stop trying to be your own king, he will save you today. He will wash you clean. He will give you a new conscience and a new power and a new hope that you can't find looking to the kings of this world. For 187 days, this king does exactly what he wants to do. He puts his public pride on display, but he is met with the refusal of his queen. And his response is predictable, right? Verse 12, burning anger. Then in verses 13 and 15, the king assembles his legal team to figure out what to do about this domestic dispute. I mean, he could have just gone and talked to Queen Vashti, right? But instead he's like, i got to get all my advisors and figure out what to do. We'll write some laws. I mean, that's, that's what I do when Stacy and I have a disagreement. I go to the city council and <laughs> tell them to put her in her place. Let me tell you how that works out. About like it did for King Ahasuerus. <laughs> Ahasuerus wants to be God. He might even believe he's God. Apparently his advisors believe it too, or they have no freedom to say anything that would suggest he's not. So what do they do? Instead of saying, hey, why don't you just go talk to your wife? They just puff him up some more. Mimukhan's like, you know what? You're right. 
this incident, you're drunk, you're not even going to remember this as we see in chapter 2. He's going to be like, now what happened to Queen Vashti? It's unbelievable. Mimukon's like, you know what, every woman in the empire, verse 17, is going to hear about this. Right. A small, forgettable, personal slight to the king, they say is a slight to everybody. How crazy is that? We would, we would never do that, right? You don't know what she did to me. I mean, when people cut me off, there's, there's a part of my flesh, I want to snap a picture of that, and I want to say, watch out for this guy. My, this personal slight, they didn't know. But we want to make our problem, our slight, the, the little issue that happened in our life. Aren't we like King Ahasuerus so often? We want to broadcast that little pain, that little slight to the whole wide world. And so what Esther is teaching us is not only to laugh at worldly leaders and worldly pride because they all come under the king of glory, but also to laugh against that in, about that in our own life. Like, why, why do I do that, Lord? You were, you were bruised for me and my transgressions. Why do I, I got to make it out like I'm the king? In any event, back to Vashti. Mimukan fears that the wives of the nobles will learn of Vashti's defiance and resist their husbands, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 18, on this very day. In other words, it's not just about all the women out in the kingdom, it's about his wife. What is my wife going to do with this incident? So he, he seems as concerned for himself as he does for the king, the king and the men surrounding the king are nothing like Jesus. They don't want to love their wives. They want to lord over their wives. They don't want to be the loving leaders of their homes. They want to be the dominant, exploiting husbands that we become because of the curse, Genesis 3.16. You see, husbands, if we are honest, as we read Esther chapter 1, there's a there's a component that's exposing our fleshliness without Jesus. That we just want to put our wives in their place and not lead them and love them like Jesus leads and loves us. But Ephesians chapter 5 says what we're supposed to do as husbands, yes, we're supposed to lead, but we're supposed to lead by being the first to lay our lives down for the good of our wives. Not to just put them in their place. These men are evidence of the fall. We live in a world, sadly, where men act a lot like King Ahasuerus and his council. They treat women poorly. They treat women as objects. And in the church, it needs to be different. Husbands, we, we need to be different. We need to show the world what Jesus is like in the way that we love, care for, and provide and lead our wives like Jesus leads us. In verse 19, Mimukan proposes that a law be written to banish Vashti from his presence. A law that he says could not be revoked. And a better queen, you know what that means, nod, wink, better queen is to be sought. Vashti will soon exit the story and never return. The, the problem with irrevocable laws is that only God has the wisdom and knowledge required 
to legislate in this fashion. Only God can make laws that can't be revocable because situations change and we make silly mistakes. Just look at the United States government. What, what will happen to God's people if an irrevocable law should target them? How will they survive? Which is going to be a question that's going to come up very soon. And yet, if we keep reading, we soon discover that God is very much on His throne. Even when a power-hungry king makes foolish decisions and enacts irrevocable laws, the king that thinks he's saving face by dismissing his queen is actually making a way for the people of God to get into the kingdom and make a difference. Though the Lord is unnamed and unacknowledged in this story, He still reigns. And therefore we can say, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Psalm 37, 7. Listen to this part. Fret not yourselves. Are you fretting this morning over some situation? Because it seems that God is absent, that He's not there. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way. Over the man who carries out evil devices. Because God is still over all. This portrayal of King Ahasuerus is not complete. Not only is he a king that has to write a law that there is no law, he's also a a king that is worried that everybody's going to find out about what his wife did, and then he makes sure that everybody finds out what his wife did. I mean, these advisors are cracking me up. We don't want anybody to find out, so they write a law to tell everybody exactly what happened. Tell everybody about it. Tell everybody that Vashti's been banished from your presence. High and low alike, verse 20. The empire's postal and translation services, they didn't have Google Translate. Now, they did have some impressive roads and Pony Express for that day. But the the translation services and the postal service of the entire empire will be used to publish a letter to 127 provinces in their own script and language to ensure, do you see it at verse 20? Women give honor to their husbands and every man be master in his own household, verse 22. Is this, can you think of a more foolish decree than this one? The decree as Wells writes, is worse than ineffective. It produces the exact opposite effect of what they intended. The slight was to the king's honor, and now everyone in the empire and every province in the script of their own language knows of the slight to the honor of the king. The world has been filled with rulers down through the ages who want to be God ever since the fall of Adam. The king of the garden wanted to be the king of kings. But ultimately, these rulers, whether they're husbands or rulers of empires or corporations or municipalities or just us wanting to rule our own lives, all these rulers die. And in the moment that we take our last breath, we face the reality that there is one with a power that is greater than ours, and His name is Yahweh. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And the good news is this, if we will lay our lives down and surrender our lives to the King of glory, to Jesus Christ now, then when we face that day of our last breath, we'll find that His power conquers even death. There is a power we can access that never fails, but it is not a power that comes from within. It is the power of the Almighty God. There is a King we can trust, but it is not ourselves and it is not our government. There is a king that we can wait upon in a wicked world, and his name is Jesus. There is a king who can help us 
even make a little bit of fun at this, of this world from time to time and not take it too seriously. I don't know if any of you have heard of the Babylon Bee, but it's, it's a satirical publication. It pokes a little fun at just about everything. I enjoy it. Sometimes they get a little too far for me. But Esther is the Babylon Bee before the Babylon Bee. She's poking a little bit of fun at the kingdom because she's like, I know the king of kings. There's a king behind the scene who's working all things out. There is a king who has all power, and he is life itself. This king is so mighty, so great, so powerful, that even death cannot overwhelm his life. Vashti did not commit a sin because she didn't want to be exploited by her husband. We, on the other hand, have committed a great sin. We refused the true king, the king of kings. Unlike Xerxes, the true king had every right to be angry with us and to cast us out of his presence. We rebelled against him and his provision and his love. And with our sinful rejection of Jesus, the whole created order was impacted. We became dirty and unclean and warped and twisted and dysfunctional. And our sin also led to an irrevocable decree. Your sin must be paid in full with human death. It's irrevocable. Sin brings death. There's also another irrevocable decree, and it's this. Sin is sin. We don't get to change the categories. You know, we live in a world today where we still want to say there's some, there's, there are things that are wrong. We just don't want it to be the, the things that God says are wrong. Y'all tracking with that? Oh, that's scary. In fact... Doing the things that God wants you to do, saying the things God wants you to say, believing and affirming the things God wants you to affirm, now that's sin. Philippians told us it would be this way. They would exchange the pure things for the, the things that are distorted and gross. So two irrevocable decrees because of our sin. Sin brings death and sin is sin and it, the categories don't change. But you know what? Our king didn't leave us to die because we sinned against him. Instead, he came for us. He didn't send his advisors like King Ahasuerus did. Hey, why don't you go get my queen for me? Aren't you glad that our, our king came himself? He didn't send angels. He didn't send, send messengers or ambassadors. He came down not to embarrass us, but to embrace us. Not to humiliate us, but to humble himself by paying our death in full and being raised on the third day to make us new and make us beautiful. The king of kings left heaven to take our place on the cross, give us himself in love, make us beautiful in his sight, and put us to work, church, in the heavenly postal service, publishing a much better decree to every tribe and tongue and language and nation. And what is our new decree? Yes, sin must be paid with death, but our king came and died. He died to forgive your sin and welcome you to a better banquet on the last day. It is a marriage feast where we will be united with our king forever. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 25 about this marriage feast. He says, the bridegroom is coming do not refuse his invitation because when the bridegroom comes, meaning himself, the king, there will be no time left to decide. For Jesus says, 
those who were ready when our king comes went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. When Jesus comes, all who have laid down their pride and their pursuit of worldly ambition and wealth and treasure and have instead surrendered their life to King Jesus, they will go into their king and he will minister to us us forevermore. So here's the question, church. The real, king, the real king is summoning you today. Why not turn from your sin and trust him? Why not join the party? Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for Jesus. Jesus, we thank you that you came. And God, that you're not a king who exalts himself but a king who is gentle and lowly. A king who doesn't exploit others to be lifted up, but a king who comes down so that we might might know how high you already are, for you are God. And Lord, in in a room this size, and and certainly thinking of those uh, tuning in by live stream, God, I know that there are people who feel like they're living in a situation a lot like the situation for the people of God in Esther. They, they can't see you moving. They don't understand what's going on in their, their family or their marriage or, God, in culture and society in their workplace. And they go, God, God, what is going on? And, and we thank you that Esther reminds us that there is a king behind what we can see. And he is high and lifted up. And he is worthy of our praise and our trust. And God, if there's anyone here today who doesn't know this king, If there's anyone here today or listening online that does not have that hope, I pray, God, in Jesus' name, that you would give them the liberty to step out and to learn more about how they can know you and have a hope that exceeds all other hopes. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke Podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.